My name is Alex Bay. I am the chair of the history department at Chapman University. I'm a historian of modern Japan, but I'm a uh, historian of science and medicine. So I look at the history of human waste management and disease prevention in Japan from roughly 1900 up to 1980. And I hope that my work can inform the global challenge of sanitation that we're facing today. About a quarter, if not more, of the world's population doesn't have access to sanitation. So the point is, how did Japan go from a very rural country without traditional sewer systems? How did they prevent these fecal oral route diseases without sewer systems? You know, was it education? Was it this? Was it that? You know, I hope that my study can kind of inform the ongoing challenges because a lot of these places like Sub-Saharan Africa, you can't build sewer systems there. So how are you going to how are you going to address these public health problems? So thank you for tuning in. This is my post, very post grad life. folks. Welcome to the This Grad Life podcast. Here we chat with researchers about their work and the inner turmoil that often comes along with living life on the leading edge. I am your host, Dr. Ted Yu. If you can't get enough of science and or dread, head down to our official website, www.thisgradlife.com. There you can read more about this episode's guest. Finally, if you find value in this podcast, you can also find links to support us. Joining me today is Dr. Alex Bay, who is the chair of the history department at Chapman University here in the heart of Orange County. Uh, we know each other because we occasionally punch each other on the face on the weekends. Kicks too sometimes. Not the first professor to come here to do that, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, well, thank you for joining. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. You're very welcome. So let's start off as we always do. Could you tell us about the research that you do? Sure. So as a uh, history of science, history of medicine person who studies modern Japan, I look at uh, how Japan managed human waste, so that's poop and pee, in the modern period in order to prevent contagious and parasite diseases. And I'm focusing on um, a couple parasite diseases, uh, cystosomiasis and roundworm and a couple fecal oral route diseases, uh, dysentery and typhoid fever. Um, I'm not looking at cholera. One of my very good friends and colleagues who teaches at Wesleyan, he is the uh, history of cholera prevention in modern Japan expert, and I leave that in his very uh, capable hands. But it's all about, I mean, the intersection with all of these uh, contagious infectious diseases and parasite diseases is untreated human waste makes it back into the... Uh, into the environment, whether it's natural or built. I guess I would argue that at the point that we're looking at Japanese history, it's really hard to distinguish between the natural and the built because, you know, a rice field is not nature. You know, wet rice agriculture is very, very labor intensive. These fields are maintained, they're built, they're maintained, uh, they're fertilized. For most of Japanese history, the easiest and most readily available fertilizer for farmers was uh, human waste. 
So they would use their own. They'd even buy it from shipmongers who would, uh, in the early modern period, go to uh, big cities like Edo, which is Tokyo today, uh, Osaka, Kyoto, and pay people for the right to clean out their bathrooms, which is kind of mind-blowing if we think about it today, because they would then take that and uh, you know double or triple uh, the price, sell it back to farmers as uh, fertilizer. And this is uh, something that, that farmers really needed because we didn't have... Um, we didn't have chemical fertilizers yet. And even when we did, a lot of uh, the rural economy couldn't afford to, to buy these things. So farmers continued to use night soil until uh, the 1960s, really. And so it was very easy for untreated night soil that contained pathogens such as uh, disease-causing bacteria and parasite eggs uh, to make it into uh, a rural environment or a, an aquatic environment. And this is how the life cycle, of a lot of parasites, they depended on these parasite eggs, making it back into the rural environment. And uh, they would then um, morph into a form that could infect a human body and the life cycle continues. Uh, and so cutting that, right? Cutting that life cycle of, of parasites, um, making sure that untreated night soil human waste did not make it back into the environment, uh, whether it was the, uh, the water supply or the food supply, uh, was the one of the biggest challenges that uh, Japanese public health officials, government officials, doctors, uh, and the like uh, had to deal with. Uh, and so it's... It's part uh, science, the science of uh, or and the biology of parasites and and these uh, bacteria, and it's part history of public health. It's part social history, how um, farmers resisted uh, these attempts uh, because you know, for all they cared, right, uh, it had no effect on on their livelihoods. It wasn't really until you could show like, hey, disease prevention actually has uh, economic benefits. And this isn't until the 1950s, 1960s, that you make a dent in the uh, incidence rates for, for these diseases. So it's, you know, it's not a century long, but it's almost a century long kind of history of um, trying to stop untreated uh, human waste from making it back into the environment. Thank you for that description. Um, so a quick uh, few questions, I guess, to kind of set up the, the background knowledge for myself. So number one, you, study, you said you studied modern Japan at around 1900s, start of the 1900s. What is the, I guess, the defining feature that makes the 1900s what's considered to be the quote-unquote modern? So modern Japan officially or unofficially starts in 1868 with the Meiji Restoration. That uh, before that was the, we call it the Edo period or the Tokugawa period, the Edo period, because uh, the shogun's capital was in the city of Edo, which is Tokyo today, or the Tokugawa period, because the Tokugawa shoguns ruled. And uh, in the uh, 1860s, uh, early 1860s, uh, so feudal Japan was a, uh, a very high, a hi a hierarchical society. Um, society was divided into uh, basically four groups. Samurai at the top, they ruled, farmers, artisans, and then merchants at the bottom. Right? This is a classic Confucian kind of social divisions. Um, 
even within samurai society, uh, samurai had uh, very strict kind of uh, hierarchical ranks based on um, their elite status. And this also led to uh, or was reflected back in their wealth. So that if you were elite samurai, you would, um, this is like ridiculously technical, you would make something like you're, you would get a stipend of 500 koku a year. And one koku was the amount of rice it took to feed one adult for one year. So you could feed potentially 500 people with your salary. You would never do that. You would, you would get your rice or you'd get uh, the equivalent in in cash but you were you were wealthy and you were rich and you had an, to uh, maintain uh, appearances up to the the 500 koku level if you were a petty samurai maybe you made 50 koku a year and you couldn't survive on that you couldn't raise a family on that so you had to do side jobs maybe you had to do cottage industry maybe uh, because of your your status they would allow you to engage in agriculture a little bit on the side um, and so there was these divisions uh, within the samurai within samurai society, um, but they all they all basically got the same education. They were all schooled in the Confucian classics, and in uh, in China, uh, theoretically, it's supposed to be a meritocracy. You would rise because anyone could, that could study would study the master the Confucian classics, take the public service exam, pass it, and then become uh, you know then you're, you've knocked it out of the park. Now you can become a civil servant and, and climb the ladder uh, from there. So they're reading all these texts. They know, hey, I am just as smart, if not smarter than that kid who's from the 500 Koku family, um, but I'm stuck in this for life. I'm stuck in this, this low-level rank. That's not fair. And when Western imperialism came in, uh, in the uh, 1850s, this was a chance uh, for um, these low-level samurai to organize, critique both the way that the shoguns handled uh, the response to Western imperialism and challenge the status quo. And they ultimately overthrew it uh, in uh, 1867. New era began in basically 1868. The samurai uh, reinstated the emperor as the highest level uh, of government. Of course, he was a figurehead, and they went about and created a kind of Western-style um, government. Uh, so that is what is modern about it. It is uh, overthrowing feudalism and then uh, also uh, instilling the emperor as the figurehead of, of a new modern Japanese nation. So that must have represented a very tremendous cultural shift as well. It was, it was, but again, you know, this is, in, in history we talk about event versus process. The Meiji Restoration or the Meiji Revolution was an event. Modernization, though, was a process. And it was not uniform as well. So you could have in the, you know, 1860s, uh, I'm sorry, 1870s and 1880s, you could have, you know, a, a modern um, medical school in uh, in Tokyo, the Tokyo Imperial University, teaching you know germ theory and all these things. It doesn't mean that everyone suddenly knew about the germ theory, right? That had to be kind of uh, diffused across uh, the nation, and it was uh, it was a slow process. So you mentioned 
Um, the term night soil, could you define yeah. that for us? So night soil is um, what is a, is a non-offensive way to talk about people's shit and piss in Japan, but also uh, in the West. Right? You would have these kind of um, latrine style toilets before you had a modern, uh, you know, water-based uh, uh, sewer system to, to carry it away, right? To flush and forget, right? You had a chamber pot or something, and that was collected by the shipmonger in Japan, like I, I had mentioned before. Um, it would it would get taken away out of the city and used uh, as um, fertilizer uh, in the in the countryside. So you had uh, a market for you know quote unquote night soil for people's for human waste for their for their crap. Sort of sort of like the Martian. Yes. Yes, he was. He was. He was lucky that he only had to deal with his own shit and piss. <laughs> the shitmonger had to collect everyone else's. I no, no I can. You yes. know, and there's even from even from the Edo period, um, there were like humorous, uh, you know, kind of limerick like uh, uh, verses um, that talk about these shit barges that would um, all of this night soil would be collected in the city of Edo, and they would get they would get loaded on these shit barges, and then they would they would go up um, to the hinterland and then get sold to farmers. But one of these kind of uh, humorous kind of limerick type things was something like um, even the kappa plugs his nose at the ship barge. And a kappa is this like um, kind of uh, mythical water sprite. Um, if you're, if you're down with your Japanese yokai kind of uh, you would know what a kappa is, but it's, it's this um, mischievous, um, sometimes scary, sometimes benevolent kind of water uh, spirit um, that uh, uh, you know lived in 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 rivers and things like that. So even he plugged his nose as the ship barge went by. It was so stinky. So I'm thinking, sitting here. So if you use uh, human waste as fertilizer, uh, rice fields are wet. Yes. And damp. Yes. I imagine that has to be a fantastic breeding ground for uh, pathogens of all sorts. Yeah. The, uh, I think what, what happened to the, ni- to the night soil at first was it would be, um, it would be fermented uh, for a time. They, they would put it, they had these big, um, basically kind of cesspits that they would dump all of this human waste in. Um, and they would let it sit for a while. And I, for the most part, I imagine that it was applied to dry fields uh, in the spring before they flooded them. Even, but even applying uh, fertilizer to dry fields, uh, you know, if there's parasite eggs in, in those, especially if it's something like schistosomiasis, the, the minute that that egg hits water, it morphs into another form. And people were... Basically, in the Japanese countryside, people practiced open defecation uh, everywhere. <laughs> Doc- doctors, public health officials that would go out in the countryside and, uh, to um, study these parasite diseases would look around and say, oh, my God, like, there is no path that doesn't have human shit on it. And the minute it rains, that's going to wash into the rice field. And the minute that those parasite eggs and that shit hit water, boom, you're going to start, you know, the life cycle of another parasite starts. So indeed, even though they didn't, they may not have like 
it wasn't like this big like shit soup that they grew rice in. I mean, shit was was everywhere. There's one study from the 1950s uh, that went out to a, a uh, farming household and checked for roundworm eggs and the way that the roundworm life cycle works is that uh, the eggs come out in in uh, and human feces and then uh, you ingest those eggs somehow so it doesn't morph into it until you to you and re-ingest it and the usual way was that untreated uh, human waste that had roundworm uh, eggs in it would get applied to vegetable fields or, or rice fields or something like that uh, and then the vegetables would wouldn't be washed well enough to wash the eggs off because the eggs were really kind of nebulous on purpose right because this is how they they evolved right to to take advantage of humans um, and and other mammals of course uh, and uh, so you you have this kind of life cycle of uh, within the rural uh, sector at least of you know pooping, using that for fertilizer, maybe for your kitchen garden, for the vegetables that you would eat yourself, uh, and then you then you get reinfected. Uh, and so these doctors went out into this uh, rural village outside of Kyoto in the 1950s, and they checked for uh, roundworm eggs around the house, outside the house, on the entrance, on the windowsills, inside, everywhere. Everywhere they looked, they found roundworm eggs. So the entire so the entire Japanese countryside was basically covered in in, in this kind of like thin film of human waste residue, um, and so that was that was part of the challenge, right? Is how do you? Um, there's a great map if you can look it up online. If you go like uh, um, like uh, fecal matter on people's doors in the U.S., you will find this map of uh, these scientists went around, checked people's doors, and they looked for bacteria that could only have come from from your intestines, basically, so from human waste. Uh, and you'd be surprised uh, how much fecal matter is on even our uh, even in our uh, in our doors today. So it's not it's not like oh my gosh that's so gross. Like no, I think the built environment now is in a sense, covered with a bunch of bacteria that we probably uh, wish wasn't there and or don't want to know about, I would imagine. Um, so anyway, right, uh, it, you know, rice agriculture and parasite diseases went together. Um, you know, dysentery, typhoid fever, um, these could happen in, uh, in the rural sector, but also, you know, they could go epidemic a lot easier uh, in cities where it gets into the to the water supply or the or, or the food supply. A lot of our previous interviewees have studied the gut microbiome. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff that I'm reading now, I wonder, like, hey, maybe all this all this shit everywhere, maybe that's just part of the natural cycle because um, there's some people that start there's some research starting to say that hey, that some transmission of gut bacteria is good. It, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Transfer, transfer some sort of like, immunity information mm -hmm. and stuff like all sorts of information gets transferred to that through that route. Um, and that makes me wonder. This is pure speculation, by the way. Of course, it makes me wonder. Yeah, maybe a lot of these parasites like saw that pathway and then they just hijacked it. They just like I'm gonna go along for this ride. Well, yeah. I mean, they evolved. It's 
we it's hard to know exactly how these parasites evolved right, because right. we don't have the we don't have the the either the historical or the archaeological records to to um, tell us okay when did schistosomiasis invade human bodies for the first time i mean we have a good sense that it was in uh, ancient india and in ancient china things like that but we don't we don't exactly know how you know um how that came about but they all evolved um at a time uh where we were 100 percent ignorant of that pathway right so you know they evolved in this uh, in a context where science didn't exist Right. And they took advantage of that. Right. For a very, 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 very long time until science finally is able to reveal, OK, this is how it works. Um, and then the challenge is, you know, the um, elite doctor at Tokyo Imperial University going out to the countryside and telling a local mayor or a local farmer or a local school teacher, hey, this is this is really important. We have to address it. And, you know, um, you know, it's that's part of the challenge. Like the human side of the story is part of the challenge to getting people to wash their hands. Like, I mean, we do it now um, just as a, you know, kind of um, without even thinking about it. But in a sense, we have been, you know, our bodies have been colonized by modern medicine and science, you know, and we've been trained to from probably since we were in, in grade school, if not before. Like, did you go to the bathroom? Go wash your hands. You know, like you hear your kid take a piss, right? Doesn't flush the toilet, nor do you hear this, the faucet go on. You're like, hey, wash your damn hands. Like, how did you know? Well, what do you mean, how did I know? One, I heard that you didn't flush the toilet. And two, I heard that the sink didn't get turned on, right? Or like, it, it's like, it's like, hey, did you even use soap? Whoa, what do you mean? Like, how did you wash your hands in the, in the, you know, with, that's not washing your hands. Wash your hands is like lathering them up and you know anyway so you know it's a lot even for modern you know current folks right it's oh yeah it's hard to instill those hygiene practices uh so imagine you know 50 75 years ago you know telling someone yeah you have to wash your hands after you you know take a shit next to your rice field like what are you talking about (laughs) why (laughs) like i'm about i'm about to go work with shit after that like applying it to my fields why do i need to you know it's like there's a great scene in um monty python's the holy grail where uh i think it's it's at the end of um bring out your dead right uh where there's a couple of peasants standing there watching king arthur come uh, either come in or, or enter the scene or, or, or leave the scene. And, and uh, Oh, he must be a king. Yeah, how do you know? He's not all covered in shit. I, I think, I mean, that is basically, you know, it, you know, the king probably would have been covered in shit as well. But uh. but I'm with you there. Even today, it's, uh, yeah, it must be a challenge. I've countless people I've caught just out the door without washing their hands. I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. But, um, okay, so then could you tell us about kind of how what was the plan to kind of get all that to change i guess more mm, yeah well yeah i guess what was the plan that was enacted to try to get that to change i am arguing now that it was kind of a total war kind of borrowing this total war motif that uh in the post-war era so the world war ii was you know total war all uh resources were mobilized to wage war 
for the Japanese. It was in China and then later uh, in the Pacific. Right? And you see this in the United States as well, right? The entire nation is mobilized to, to fight World War II. Uh, so this idea of kind of um, like, quote unquote, uh, total prevention, right? You can't just, um, we can't just go out and kill parasite eggs. We can't just do this. We can't just get kids to wash their hands, right? Um, it has to be like this total war against uh, infectious disease, including um, education in schools, including um, education tours into the countryside because you can get the kids, but the parents, if the parents couldn't be bothered, right? You're going to have problems, right? Uh, so you get it in the schools, get it in the uh, countryside, um, tie public health advances to economic advances by saying, hey, if we concrete these irrigation ditches, we're going to eliminate some of the habitat for the parasite. And this is not only going to um, improve uh, agricultural output, but it's also going to prevent diseases which are debilitating and uh, have really adverse economic effects. And it's getting, uh, you know, local politicians to um, petition the central government for funds. It's getting laws passed or amended that give uh, big money, uh, big money, I mean, you know, substantial funds to these public health programs so that they can actually do something rather than put up a couple posters and say, hey, wash your hands, right? Um, you know, so it, it goes from, you know, the the local to the uh, center um, and back going from uh, scientists, politicians, uh, you know, local elites, all the way down to the farmer who has to stop um, taking a shit in his field because that's part of the public health campaign that's going on at that time. You know, whether he does so because he feels, or he has been told like um, this, you know, stop shitting in your field uh, in order to make, in order to rebuild Japan after World War II. Whether it's that, whether they buy like the kind of the propaganda, or you know, they he gets shamed by his kids. Like, hey, Dad, they tell us at school you're not supposed to take a shit in the field. Only losers take a shit in the field. Dad, are you a loser? And then it's like, oh fuck, okay, right? So um, it had to be like a total war effort against um, parasites and infectious disease or it wasn't gonna it wasn't gonna um, happen and you know, getting back to the kind of the the policy relevancy of this you know at the very end of the story we get uh, sewers right clean water is a different story um, but that was I think an important part of it right making sure that uh, in the rural areas and the cities people get clean water, right? Untainted by human waste. Um, but also getting rid of, of, of human waste, right? Up until the mid-50s, late-50s, you had a system of shipmongers getting it out of the city. That breaks down. The, um, the system gets basically municipalized, right? So it becomes a service that you pay for. Uh, and once, uh, you know, you had uh, infrastructure set up, and that's kind of part of the story as well, right? Of these things that are called, um, they're called vacuum cars, although they're not cars, they're trucks. Uh, and they have this big old um, pump system on it with a container and a big long hose. And uh, they would, 
uh, it's like the garbage truck. They pull up to your house. They go to your um, septic tank system, which is probably uh, self-contained, and they would remove all that human waste and then take it to a central processing plant, uh, dump it there, and then it would get treated like like, like a, a modern sewer plant, right? Uh, and then disposed of. Um, but that that doesn't happen in the story really until the late 1960s, early 1970s. I mean, one of the big thing in my research, um, I'm looking at uh, the concern with having the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo, the Summer Olympics. And, and one of the concerns was, we need to clean up the city. We need to expand you know, sewer coverage. We need to do all these things. And at the end of the day, they didn't really expand the sewer coverage too much, but they did a, a great job apparently of cleaning up around the Olympic Village. So it didn't look like there was shit everywhere, but um, you know, it, it, uh, it, was, uh, it was a challenge and it's not the answer. It's like, oh yeah, modern sewers and then everything, everything gets better. Like, well, no, we, we get disease prevention before sewers. So how, uh, what were the necessary kind of components of that and how can that be exported to, to some other place that uh, has similar uh, challenges to public health? So perhaps the sewers weren't um, so much the answer to all of this, but more the logical conclusion to all of these. That might, steps. That, that's a, probably a good way to kind of to think about it. So you mentioned that this is the uh, sort of the hypothesis that you have, yeah. or I guess how well, it's, it's still called the same in history, I imagine, or the... Well, uh, not necessarily a hypothesis per se, right. but uh, you know, this study sets out to examine or to ask the following questions. Uh, and I'll be looking at th this type of material to get at that answer. And um, while speculative at this moment, um, I hope that the study will show that. So it is a hypothesis, but we don't call it that. Yeah, I really. guess you can't experiment on it, and I wouldn't. You can do a thought experiment. Um, and, you know, I mean, everything has to have a citation. You have to have footnotes, right? And that's the way that, um, you know, it can be replicated. Someone else could go back and say, well, you asked these questions, looked at these sources. You know, the, the classic example is this uh, a Japanese historian, intellectual historian from University of Chicago named Harry Heratunian. And he wrote a book uh, called Things Seen and Unseen. And it was looked at writings of samurai from uh, the early modern period, from the feudal period. And the argument is basically, we can see the traces of the kind of Meiji restoration in these early writings, right? So even if you didn't see them, you know, if they're not at the surface, they're in there, they're buried in there. Uh, and then a graduate student who was working on those exact same, so this book came out and Harry Harutunin was kind of, the shit back in the day as an intellectual historian. A graduate student, uh, Kate Nakai, I think uh, it was, um, she was writing her dissertation using these same things and she's the same sources. And she said, hey, wait a second, that's not the reading I'm getting. And so she went and she wrote this as a graduate student, this scathing book review that basically said, you know, Heratunian misquotes, mistranslates, or completely ignores, you know, maybe. Uh, he draws in the first part of the paragraph, but the second part of the paragraph completely flips its stance. And so it's not what the author was actually arguing. Uh, and so then 
Harry get uh, that book by Heratunian gets nicknamed by the field of Japanese historians things read and unread, right? So yeah, you know, so you know, um, as experiments they can be uh, checked, and uh, there is a uh, the ability to reproduce these things. Um, I mean, right. you, wouldn't, you wouldn't try to do the same thing, but you may say, "Hey, I I don't agree with you," um, and that's how that's how the field develops. So you did kind of touch around this question a little bit, but um, I'll ask it a little bit more explicitly. So what is your day-to-day like when you're performing research? So I guess, um, yeah, 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 yeah. What is as a grad student or as a, as a faculty? Uh, I'll take answers from both. Actually, I'm curious about both. So as a grad student, my best friend, Brett Whalen, who teaches uh, medieval European history at um, UNC, uh, he and I had a cubicle in the library, and we would, I don't know if we switched we- every week or switched every other day. We had all our shit in there, uh, and only one person could work in it in this little room at a time. And so the other person would work um, at a table nearby, uh, and we would, we would go in. I mean, it was almost like a nine-to-five job for us. We'd go in. We would, for, and for me, I would uh, have a stack of sources that I collected and I would go through them and figure out which ones I really wanted to use. So I'd whittle that down and I would one by one go through, read them, take notes, uh, mark areas that I want to translate because this is in Japanese. and. Um, then after I read the entire document, I would go through, I would take notes, I would translate sections into Japanese, and then I'd move to the next document. So it's like a lot of uh, reading, a lot of translating. Uh, it takes time. It would take about a month to read everything I needed to and take notes, a uh, month, a month and a half for a, ch- a dissertation chapter, and then another month, month and a half to write the to get it up and running where you could actually show your dissertation advisor uh, it. Um, you know, so for two to three months to get a chapter. And if I was going to sit down and write a book chapter, probably be around the same around the same time, if, if that's all I was doing. But as a faculty, uh, what I try to do is uh, every day spend one hour doing research, uh, in addition to teaching and grading and administrative crap. All, you know, on top of that, go to the coffee shop. It depends what stage I'm in. If I'm reading sources, I've got a a big, you know, like A3 file folder full of copies that I've gotten in Japan. And I just sit my butt down in a chair with a cup of coffee and I put my timer on and I go through and the timer goes off. I stop and then go back and do whatever needs to get done after that. And if you do that for an academic year, uh, you know, it's five hours a day, how many weeks in a year? Um, it actually adds up, <laughs> surprisingly. And, you know, you have enough to write uh, at least an article or two with that much work under your belt. Um, you know, and then depending on the stage, go to the coffee shop, uh, you got your notes, how am I going to, how am I going to organize this? How am I going to, you know, whether it's a, a journal article, a book chapter, or a conference paper. 
you know that you you just you go through figure out what you want to say you go back maybe you have to find more stuff maybe you have to like you always have to engage the critical literature on the topic so how does your argument fit in with what other people have already said and so you it's a you know kind of creative process at that point of of writing polishing you know being able to uh, present it uh, at a conference or to a workshop that you know it's going to get it's going to lead to a publication if i am disciplined or if one is disciplined uh, and can do an hour a day because it's just an hour i mean how many hours do we waste looking at like facebook or instagram or crap like that or youtube right i mean i'm guilty as uh, as as the next person uh, but you can you can spare one hour every day and at the end of the week that's five hours and and that's basically you know some people say well you should save one day as a faculty member for your own research and when you're when you're reading japanese documents translating them working through them you know four or five hours after that i mean you are brain dead right you are you're just shot so you know if you could get five hours in and in and a single week that's basically like dedicating one day to 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 your own work which i think is impossible as a faculty member uh, at a teaching intensive you know if you were at an r1 and you you had you know maybe one class this semester or maybe two classes this semester and one of them was a grad colloquium and you just sit back and the graduate students talk the whole time yeah maybe you could take your fridays and and completely fuck off and go do your own research and 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 tell your graduate students not to bug you and you know at five o'clock go to the pub and have a beer and, and and you would have gotten your five or six hours in but that's not what like teaching at chapman's like uh so five you know one hour a day five days a week research gets done if you don't then you come up for tenure and you're like dang i gotta get my dissertation in shape to get published like you're in trouble right you're in trouble um so it's that's a challenge at, for people at i think t uh, teaching intensive universities uh, because of um, the teaching load and maybe some service load but at, at chapman at least in the history department we are very uh purposeful about um shielding junior faculty from too much service because you know like oh here comes like let's say that you're um you get hired uh to teach um you know uh, african-american women's history right um and you're a woman and you're african-american as well suddenly like a dozen people want you for this committee or that committee or all these initiatives and things like that and like no no, your job is to teach your classes, come to department meetings, and write your book. You say no to all those other ones, right? That's my job as chair, right? Other places, they're like, oh, no, it's your, you know, you're expected to do that. Well, then it becomes difficult because you don't want to say no, you know. You want to be a good colleague. Um, you want to give back to the university. Service gets counted uh, for tenure. It's not going to replace a book that's for sure but you know you have to have some service you have to have good teaching and you have to have publications right um and if you're bogged down with service and you and you barely you know you sneak by with teaching is fine but your research 
you know is lacking you're screwed right so you have to you have to um you have to protect those junior faculty so that they can so they can every day go to the coffee shop get a coffee stick their butt in a chair and do an hour of work throughout the course of your research how often do you draw parallels to the world as it is today because there are a lot of numbers numbers numerous issues off the top of my head which i can imagine which would also require a similar total or effort to kind of, you know, well, isn't that one of the of arguments? Pit? Is like, let's declare total war against climate change. Let's mobilize the entire nation to battle climate change. Yeah, uh, I see more um, relevancy uh, with what's going on really in the third world in terms of uh, ongoing uh, issues of, you know, like the practice of open defecation in India or, um, you know, what happens uh, in Africa when, uh, you know, they get heavy rains and, and people's pit, um, you know, pit latrine kind of toilets overflow, right? Because like you could, ha- you could dig a, uh, have a very nice pit latrine in your backyard. It could be even concreted. Uh, it, you could pay someone to clean it out uh, occasionally, right? But all of a sudden, if there's monsoon rains uh, uh, that and it floods, then all that shit just washes into the street and or possibly into your house. And, you know, so there's, there's ongoing challenges that um, other scholars look at uh, in terms of um, uh, getting people proper sanitation that I, I connect um, my stuff to in terms of um, kind of side projects uh, I teach and I've researched a little bit um, the problems in the in the post uh, Fukushima nuclear power plant meltdowns in Japan in terms of um, exploding children's thyroid cancer rates uh, and also the the problem of what do you do with a bunch of radiation a bunch of radiated material right that they because of the tsunami right that they, they um like rubble just washed in, in uh you know inland and they collect all this rubble uh stuff from fukushima uh, and the surrounding prefectures is irradiated and so what do you do with that um what do you do with that material you have to store it um or uh, some places they were burning it and they would oh get goodness. no it was this bad right um, they would exceed uh, very often they would exceed the radiation levels that were allowed to be given off like when you take irradiated material and burn it it becomes highly concentrated right um, you have this problem also like uh, cities like Yokohama right that have uh, the, their sewer systems and their uh, and their drainage, like for um, for uh, rainwater and the like, these are the same. Basically, they they end up at the same place, right? Um, and that that's the cheap way to do it, right? You don't have separate systems, right? You have uh, one system, right? So uh, as this rainwater and human waste gets processed, in the end, what happens usually is that um, they remove the solid from the liquid. They they um, disinfect the liquid, and then it they can just get rid of it out to the ocean or or, or into the river or what have you. Um, and then, but the the solids, right? Um, they remove about eighty five percent of the moisture from it, and then they take it to the local trash burning facility and they burn it. 
So they take this this human waste and they burn it. But this human waste also has been processed with a bunch of irradiated rainwater. Right? So the ash that comes from that is in in uh, the city of Yokohama, at least, was uh, the radiation was so high that they had to store it like hazmat material, right? And they ran out of space to to store it, right? So the, these are the, these are ongoing connections uh, as well. As a medical historian, I'm interested in um, as a hist- historian of science, history, a historian of medicine. I'm interested in the uh, rising thyroid cancer rates, and as a historian of waste, I'm interested in the problems with with um, uh, getting rid of irradiated rubble, getting rid of human waste that gets processed in the in the same kind of system as as rainwater that has. Uh, radiation from the nuclear melt uh, throughs, right? These didn't just melt down. They melt. I mean, like there is molten rubble, like molten material underneath each of those three power plants, right? And you know, they're ha- you know they they had a lot of trouble getting robots that were strong enough to res- to that could withstand the radiation, to, even to 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 get a camera in there, right? You know, in terms of global warming and things like that. I mean, I'm just concerned as a as a global citizen, right? Um, more as a researcher and um, after 3.11 kind of got, that that was the, the earthquake, tsunami, uh, nuclear meltdown or melt-throughs. Um, after 3.11, I became kind of an activist, a no-nukes person. My wife became a no-nukes person. She's Japanese. She kind of realized, oh my God, the Japanese government is lying to the people. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And I'm like... Like I'm a historian. Like there's no modern nation state that doesn't lie to its people. Like I'm outraged. Like well, good for you. Like let's let's turn that into something. And so she got into hooked up with some no nukes folks here, and then got hooked up with no nukes folks uh, in Japan that um, that are uh, you know basically protesting the government's uh, kind of addiction to uh, nuclear power and also uh, the way it handles. Uh, the ongoing crisis of, uh, of um, uh, radiation in eastern Japan. Uh, so if, if you want modern, like uh, applying historical uh, critical thinking to modern problems, that's where most of my uh, intellectual energies go. The, oh, the government's lying to us. Yeah, so because um, my graduate work was in recycling nuclear fuel. Yeah. So this was kind of my field. And interestingly enough... Some of the postdoc offered, like, you know, pingings that, you know, mass pings that I would get, like, related to, oh, come work for the Japanese government, talk about nuclear power and all mm-hmm. that stuff. I'm like, huh, okay. If there's ever a country to be real wary of nuclear power, it's, it should be Japan. I think that's, that's, that's fine to, with me. You Very know what? Appreciate, yeah. I, we appreciate yeah. that sentiment. Could you deal the dirt on Fukushima? <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's go with that. Okay, so the the I guess the down and dirty uh, narrative would be that the lack of investment in nuclear power plant safety by the Fukushima Daiichi uh, nuclear power plant operators, um, TEPCO, led to meltdown or led to complete system failure after the earthquake. Because they had their backup um, generators in the basement 
uh, and their uh, their basic kind of uh, safety uh, break wall outside the nuclear power plant, which is right on the co- like right on the coast, like San Ofre, it's right on the coast, um, uh, was too was was too low, and they had been told uh, that historically there have been uh, uh, l- you know tsunami that will will topple that. I'm like no 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 no. Well, yes, 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 yes. Right. I mean, the, the earthquake itself was was unprecedented, right? Like yes. nine point nine point one, which is I don't think we can unless we actually experienced it. We we can't like articulate how severe of an earthquake um, that was, and that may have that may have been the the you know the nail in the coffin for that power plant, you know. But the the flood that took out the the emergency generators um, in the basement, which in the basement definitely where, flood first, where we're just going to flood first, right? Um, so it knocked out power. They couldn't uh, keep the fuel rods, um, couldn't keep pumping water to cool cool the fuel fuel rods. Uh, they burned off all the water. Uh, they lost containment, uh, and um, there were some hydrogen explosions that blew the buildings apart. Uh, and at this point, right, radiation starts escaping. Now, the government didn't use its speedy system, which is supposed to um, predict where, based on weather patterns, where radiation is going to uh, go, right? So a lot of people evacuated basically into the nuclear plume, right? Uh, And some of these were kids, right? There was lots of, you know, adults, elderly, uh, you know, folks, but also also kids, right? Uh, iodine tablets weren't um, passed out, although apparently the, uh, uh, the governor of the prefecture and his staff had iodine tablets. Oh, the hmm. normal people, Interesting. The, the regular people, the people like the people didn't, right? So a lot of people uh, were irradiated, people from uh, um, Futaba, the town of Futaba, where that housed the nuclear power plant. They got the evacuation order. One of uh, my friends in Japan... Um, uh, Yukiko uh, um, Kamiya, she basically, she grabbed her purse, grabbed a jacket. She had like 60 bucks in her purse. She didn't grab her her really, um, the, like the jewelry that meant a lot to her and things like that. And she ran and she cannot go back because of the of the, the radiation levels, right? So she left her house with $60 in her purse and a jacket on her back. And that that's that for her. For her home, basically, and her life in, in, in Fukushima. Now she lives in, in Tokyo. Um, and she's, of course, a not, not of course, but she is a no-nukes activist uh, as well. Anyway, right, so you have uh, radiation that uh, escapes from the nuclear power plant. There is a 20-kilometer, um, basically, no-fly zone uh, around uh, the power plants. Um, but that's not how... Uh, the radiation escaped. There are some places outside of the the twenty kilometer radius that are that are more highly irradiated than places inside it, right? And so um, this kind of um, twenty kilometer radius wasn't aggressive enough. You know, should have. I mean, some people would argue it. They should have evacuated the whole damn area, right? Um, regardless. People still live. Kids go to school. You know, kids after the Fukushima uh, meltdown, uh, which happened in March 
by April, maybe May, kids started going back to school, like elementary school kids in the prefecture of Fukushima. They wore dosimeters, right? And that information was collected by the government. Parents weren't told about how much, uh, uh, you know, their kids were being uh, um, uh, exposed, right? Their exposure levels. The government had this massive um, kind of uh, cleaning effort where they were going to basically take uh, six, I think it was like six centimeters of topsoil off uh, the entire prefecture of Fukushima as a way to kind of uh, like clean up the radiation. Whole lot of soil. Well, actually, yeah, no, and... I, that's um, it's not the entire uh, the entire prefecture where people live. So let's say that I have a I have a house, I have an acre. They would come, they they would wash down. Uh, my entire all my buildings all my cars everything uh they would take like six centimeters of topsoil off um but if there was a mountain right behind my house right the minute the wind blew the minute you know it rained the minute um you know anything i ain't gonna do it they ain't gonna do it right and so this kind of um myth of making it safe like oh the environment's safe to go back into right it's not and the the number so uh, epidemiologically uh, child th- thyroid cancer incidence rates are one and two per million, right? And in Fukushima Prefecture at this point, although my my research isn't up to date, um, there are probably over two hundred cases of uh, thyroid cancer among uh, you know up to eighteen years of age, right? And that is. You can only say it's cancer when they remove it and look at the cells, right? You can, I mean, there's a lot more, there's thousands more that have anomalies in their thyroid. They just haven't gotten big enough where the doctor says we need to operate. So you have, um, uh, you know, maybe 200, 200 plus kids that uh, have had this uh, thyroid surgery and the lab results come back and say, yes, those cells were cancerous, right? You have a lot more that have anomalies. And if you're a parent and your child, you know, gets checked out of the doctor and uh, they say, yeah, uh, there's some anomalies in the thyroid, um, but don't worry, it's not cancer. We can't say it's cancer yet, dot, 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 right? It's like this ridiculous, right? So there's a bunch of people who are for whatever reason, whether it's financial uh, or familial, um, there's a number of reasons why people can't just cut and run from Fukushima. If you had a lot of money, you could just say, yeah, see you guys later, and you can move to Okinawa, and you'd be fine, right? Um, but not everyone can do that. And if you have you know, f- uh, family roots in the area, it's even harder. Um, or, right, if your husband worked for the power plant, right? And still works for TEPCO. It's hard to completely cut and run um, from the area because that's that's the, f- the family's livelihood, right? Um, and so there's this explosion of uh, children's thyroid cancer and the government's uh, official line is it has nothing to do with um, the nuclear meltdowns. Uh, this is just the screening phenomena that because we're looking, we find some more cases that are just within the natural kind of numbers of of uh, you know of, ch- of children's uh, thyroid cancer, which is bullshit. We know it's bullshit. We know it's bullshit. Interesting, because um, 
the because uh, <laughs> these numbers get thrown around a lot in you know our lab group meetings because you know as you might imagine so it's kind of our deal um yeah you know i'd hear often oh yeah uh the, the government of japan just downgraded the amount of casualties from fukushima to zero and i'm like thinking to myself so hold on so they were burning the rubble number one they didn't distribute iodine tablets yeah. they didn't use the the easy mm-hmm. uh the mapping the Speedy. The speedy response mm-hmm. software to like predict what, and then you're telling me no one's gonna get injured or die from this. You got hold on, hold on a second. Yeah, it's, hold it's, on a second. I yeah. understand the economics mm-hmm. of nuclear power as much as everyone else here in this lab, but hold the hold the phone, hold on, man. Like, <laughs> do we not understand like the severity of what a nine point one is, and do we not like um? And there's also clearly a concerted effort by the government to like just kind of hide all that information so like sweep that all under the rug yeah why do you why do you think that is so it's uh, a couple reasons um one is because of um the political investment in i mean they call it a nuclear village in japan this kind of revolving door between industry uh, uh politicians and bureaucrats that uh, that there has been a lot of investment over you know the last so from the '60s I would imagine right so you know uh, 50, 50, 60 years now of of uh, investment in nuclear power um, although uh, at its heyday it was only thirty percent of Japanese power came from nuclear what was their energy mix historically and how has it changed now. Well, so it's not as much nuclear, right? They're probably burning more, um, more oil or, or coal, and some some hydroelectrical, and probably some thermal because of, of hot springs uh, um, as well. So one, it's kind of you know, it's it's like a story of the of the oil industry, right? Like how how can why can't we root this these bastards out? You know, they're dug in, uh, they're dug in deep, um, and part of it is um so they want that they, they want continued kind of payback on their you know uh on their investments i mean th- even tepco was in the middle of the crisis didn't want to use seawater to cool the the fuel rods as the as the plant went completely black because they knew once they added seawater to the to the plant it was scrapped. It was done, yeah. yeah. It was done. It was, it was over, right? That's it's done anyway. Yeah, but they had to. They had to, right? I don't think even if they had done it earlier, it would have made a, that much difference because they couldn't have got enough water consistently to, to avoid meltdowns. Um, another reason, I think, is just to do it right. They would probably have to um, evacuate 50 kilo, uh, uh, kilometer radius from the, you know, they'd have to double, triple the amount of people they evacuated and basically make of a large section of, of um, eastern Japan uh, no man's land, right? Uh, and that would, and, and relocating people, supporting them, getting them housing, doing all these things for them would have cost a shit ton of money. So that's a little bit understandable, but it's, it, I mean, it's only pe- a little bit. It's a people's lives, you know, yeah. I don't give a shit about that. Um, and the, 
there's kind of um, these power companies have monopolies. I think there's six or seven of these regional power companies that, and there's no competition, right? Um, unless you, or even if you, you know, even if you put, you know, solar panels on your roof, right? You're still, you're selling electricity back to the, to the same folks. Um, I think it's kind of hard to go off the grid 100%, um, uh, especially in Japan. So you have these monop the, these regional monopolies on, on, on generating and supplying power. You have a political investment. You have massive costs if you were really going to do it right. And I think you also have, and well, yeah, there's a couple more things. And you also have um, this idea of kind of, and although it may be kind of, it's like, People may accuse it of being kind of like Orientalist uh, in nature. I mean, th this idea of saving face, right? That, uh, right, you want to maintain appearances. Like, no, uh, everything's under control. It's not a disaster. Uh, let's host the Olympics. In, in the aftermath of uh, 311, um, a national kind of campaign is is quote unquote um, let's support Fukushima by eating their products, their agricultural products. Right, that's an excellent idea. Yes, excellent idea. Right, which is like they're trying to like no 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 nothing to see here no 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 you want to help Fukushima people right yeah okay well then here buy their buy their you know these um, pears or buy their sake or buy their rice you know and it's like man no. No, don't, don't, that's, that's, you don't have to go that far, right? Um, and then lastly, this is not just a story of, of Japan, but, you know, the global nuclear industry is, um, acts in similar ways to, to the way the Japanese government, Japanese nuclear uh, industry, um, acts. When I was doing research, this is in 2016, uh, I contacted, just kind of out of the blue, a researcher at some university that wrote about um, like uh, exposure levels. Um, I can't remember exactly what this person's specialty was, but I, I basically sent an email and said, hey, I read your chapter in this book and I got a couple questions. Uh, and then he wrote back and he was very nice. We had a couple like back and forth. And he said, yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. And uh, then said, yeah, well, uh, you know, I've talked to the NRC people, the Nuclear Regulatory um, Commission people here, uh, and uh, you know they have it on the books. Like, if there's a meltdown, they're going to bump the exposure limit up to um, to twenty. Uh, what is it? Microsieverts, um, right? Which is what is the annual exposure limit for someone who works in a nuclear power plant? I think if I remember correctly, right? So they're going to take, you know, the exposure limit for someone who works in close proximity to, to materials, right? And knows it and just apply that to an area that, that has a nuclear meltdown, right? So it's not just a story of Japan. It's a story of a global industry that really doesn't give a shit about the safety of people. It's all about profit, and that's a similar story. It's, you know, it's, this, you know, of, um, you know, oil. Yeah. Where have I heard that before? Yeah, yeah. You, know, it, you know, coal, big pharma, opioid crisis. You know, we see this over and over and over again. So um, it's not just to point the finger at Japan and say, oh, look at these Japanese idiots. It's like, no, th this is a story of, uh, you know, 
of the U.S. of the global nuclear kind of industry. Um, so while it is particularly Japanese, uh, it affects us all because, you know, until several years ago, right, Sanofre was plugging away, had problems, right? Lots of worker complaints, lots of, uh, of kind of uh, little leaks here and there, right? And they jury-rigged uh, a um, new cooling system that was supposed to last 40 years, at last two before they had to turn it offline, right? That could have easily, right? And, and after, it, um, after they turned it off, they commissioned it, right? Um, it was three or four years ago. There was like some brush fires in the summer got dangerously close to it. Like, um, you know, people were going to have to evacuate the the decommissioned nuclear power plant. Like that would have been like, it's just bad. In general, bad news. You know, I understand the argument that, well, look at all the power that this produced, right? But you have one accident and that wipes it all out, you know? And I don't think, I, I would like, to, I would be interested to see the numbers of um, how much profitability uh, a nuclear power plant that runs for 40 years produces versus the cost of actually decommissioning it and then storing uh, the spent nuclear fuel for the necessary amount of time that you have to store spent nuclear fuel. And at the end of the day, do they line up? Does one, you know, is, is it ultimately profitable or at the end of the day, is it not even without accidents, right? I don't know. I don't. I don't know the answer. To that so that's something I can tell you about yeah. right now. Uh, number one, no, those are not factored into the price of the plant. Yeah, it's not guaranteed. It's not um, forty or fifty years. That's about sounds about right for a plant to break even. Yeah. Um, from the oh to break just, even, yeah. just to break even. Break even is oh, about forty shit. or fifty years. That sounds about right to me. Which is why it's so wildly unpopular. Um, which I get. And then at the same time, like. This is where I gotta complain a little bit. Yeah. Like we, we, we could people could just be doing a better job at everything, yeah. right? But like, because um, yeah, I mean it's true in terms of carbon emissions, it's basically none, which is great because we're not. You can get all this energy without having to worry about you know contributing more greatly to yeah. the global global warming, which in itself is already killing people. And you know, ash from like coal is already killing yeah. people. Um, which, yeah, fly ash, certain kinds of coal fly ash releases more radioactivity because there's still like trace bits of uranium, like okay. elements in there mm -hmm. that are from the ground because it's, it's all exists in the ground and we're burning it and now we're throwing it into the sky, concentrating it. Come on, like, and then at the same time, y'all are gonna turn around and pull this bullshit, yeah, like. Like, what I personally think is, um, you know, this is technology that's here. I would love for fusion to come around. Uh-huh. Until it's a commercial product, it ain't, it ain't gonna, we can't form policy decisions around it, especially, yeah. you know, related to our long-term survival on this planet. It's like, yeah, like, it's a, as a technology, it is a great opportunity for us to wean ourselves off of oil and stuff like that. But then y'all are gonna turn around and do this bullshit it, it makes me so angry. It makes but, me so angry. Yeah, there's um, maybe you've seen it. There's a documentary on the Indian Point power plant, and um, I don't know if it, I think it's in upstate New York. I still think it's in New York. I don't know if it's in Jersey or wherever. Um, but it's about the Indian Point nuclear power plant, which is I think is is on 
is slated for decommission if it hasn't been already decommissioned. Maybe I'm remembering that wrong. Anyway, they were talking to the to the main engineers. They're talking to like the Scotty, the Scotty of this nuclear power plant, and he's like, "I can keep this thing running. I can keep I I tinker, and I will. I, if you have people who can tinker, they can keep this thing running, right?" Which was interesting. Like, yes, it's a technological system. Yes, you can have people with a tacit knowledge that know how to keep it running. But what happens when, you know, you can't, right? You know, when something happens where you can't, like, just the the everyday tinkering doesn't do the job anymore, right? Whether it's an earthquake or or you know or a wildfire. I mean, that time know, will come. It will right? come. Right? Yeah. Right. Where you have you know, okay, there's a you know because of global warming and you have these you know a uh, massive fire where people have to um, where the tinkerer, the guy with the tacit knowledge on how to keep the damn plant running, has to to beat cleats out of there. You know, so it, it um, technology is awesome you factor human error into that or greed or corporate greed and it's just kind of you know bad news right yeah yeah what a shame nope we had a good run <laughs> humans we had a good run. i really like that i really like that um bumper sticker and it was for the last election too but it's been it's been updated it's um uh giant meteor 2020 yeah. <laughs> just ended already yeah i like that one that was a good one. No, I get it. There's a lot of reasons to not use it. There's a lot of reasons to use nuclear power. I know France went real hard on it. Yeah. They've suffered no real major accidents that we know of. Mm-hmm. At least nothing major has happened because, you know, everyone downwind of that will know. Like, the world will know if something major happened within an hour because we have those detectors everywhere yeah. now. Um, because, you know, we can't. Turns out we can't count on anyone just to keep their word just because, <laughs> right? So we put up all these detectors yeah. to make sure no one's blown up nukes just to test them or whatever mm-hmm. and stuff like that and, you know they've been chugging along like France didn't have access to like the coal or any of the hydro- hydrocarbons they can't really do solar can't really do offshore that was their only choice and they, they're making it work and I just have to wonder like I guess what are the differences then is that was that it was that like can they kind of had to take that bitter pill and swallow it like that to like really swallow it down they're like there's no other way to have independence as a country uh-huh yeah i, I don't but, know you have to talk to a uh, um, an expert on either uh, nuclear power the history of nuclear power in france or um yeah or a policy person that would give us a particular spin of course I've, I think I've mentioned this before in some other episodes that I hand out a survey. It's not a like it's a quick thing just to kind of get your gears turning. It's not really a survey um, where I'm like keeping track of data, though I might one of these days. I'm a scientist after all. Um, but uh, but the idea is I ask questions like, well, why did you get into grad school in the first yeah. place? And one of the questions I ask is, did you have any awareness of your topic before coming in? Did you... Um, what was the question exactly? It was something like, did you care about or know about your topic before coming into grad school or something like that? And then you answered no, if I recall. So I um, I graduated from Lewis and Clark College as an undergraduate with 
so-so grades, but a uh, deep interest in, in Japan. Uh, and I moved to Japan. I taught English there for almost two years. Then I went back for more language training and did a year of language training at a Japanese university uh, as a kind of preparation to apply to graduate programs, which was the kind of the advice that my professors gave me at Lewis and Clark. Like, your grades aren't good enough to go straight into grad school, but you go to Japan, maybe study some languages, uh, then you could, you could do it. And so I got into the um, Asian Studies MA program at University of Oregon. And uh, I was interested in Japanese history, but I was more interested in um, medieval Japanese history. My advisor, Andrew Goebel, he was a medievalist. And uh, so I did coursework with him. And he, although he was a kind of uh, um, an institutional historian, or he was trained... Um, at Stanford by an, uh, an institutional historian of you know that the studies uh, medieval institutions look at uh, looks at uh, court records or shogunal edicts or courtier diaries or things like that uh, to get at um, the nature of medieval uh, institutions because it's a little bit harder to do medieval social history because of the lack of sources anyway uh, so I uh, I was studying with with Andrew Goebel, and he was, at the moment, turning himself into a medical historian. Uh, And that, I was exposed to that as a MA student. I had absolutely no interest in it. (laughs) Absolutely no interest in it whatsoever. Uh, But I did read um, Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions with him, which is a classic. And uh, then I read uh, William Johnston's The Modern Epidemic, A History of Tuberculosis in Japan, which uh, kind of was uh, engaging similar questions about um, paradigm shifts, about people's thinking about um, how to prevent tuberculosis, which is kind of, it's called the modern epidemic because it, this was like, you know, a disease of, uh, of industrialization and, and modernization and the like. So I was exposed to it, um, but went to Stanford as a PhD student in Japanese history uh, with the idea that I was going to do medieval history. I, my advisor was Jeff Mass, um, who was the leader of the field. He had trained almost everybody. Uh, they were teaching at uh, U.S. institutions, uh, medieval history, uh, and... Uh, by the time I, so I got to Stanford in the fall of 99, a year and a half into it, uh, he suddenly died of a rare form of stomach cancer. Uh, but in the meantime, I had become interested in the history of science, history of medicine, because he was just, ha- uh, by chance, on leave the first uh, term that I was there. And he said, you, well, you have to take another class and it better be in the history department. And so I looked at the, so I was doing modern Japan. I was doing Japanese language, uh, like classical um, language training. And I looked and there was a class that had some of the readings that I had done as an MA student, like the Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And 
And I said, well, at least I'm one or two readings up on this list. And I take, I just, on a lark, I took it. It was a history of science. It was a critical uh, science studies class. So it's a history of science class. And I, I was bitten with this bug, like, oh my God, the, the questions they ask in the history of science are really fascinating. I'd love to apply these to Japanese history, but I'm a medievalist. Well, shit. A year and a half later, I was Turns like, out, yes. I, I was back in the office of the modern uh, Japan historian Peter Deuce, uh, saying, "You know, I've I did this paper in your class on on the history of Berry Berry. I think it's it could work as a dissertation topic." And he said, "Let's do it." So as uh, Professor Mass passed, uh, I became a medieval. Uh, I went from being a medievalist to a modernist. Uh, that was interested in the history of science, history of medicine. So when I said no, I didn't have any, I, you know, I didn't really know about the field of history of, of science before um, going to Stanford. But once there, I turned myself into one. Yeah, it just kind of strikes me, given the conversation we just had about nuclear power yeah. in Japan and how you're able to draw those parallels. I wonder to myself, could you... How do you think that might have been different if you were just, if you say it as a medievalist? If Jeff Mass didn't die, and I would have been completely, I would have still taken those science studies classes, and I would still have been interested in it. I may have kept up on some of the reading, maybe not. Um, So in the wake of 311, I, I would have had some, or the questions I would have asked about what was going on would have been informed by the history of science, history of medicine. They wouldn't have been, it wouldn't, they wouldn't have been based on my field of, of, of study. Um, when I was finishing up my dissertation, uh, Stanford hired uh, Landa Scheibinger, who is a, um, a pillar in the field of uh, history of science. And uh, they, we, Stanford got her husband, Robert Proctor, uh, and he is a medical historian, and he's written on um, uh, the history of cancer, the history of tobacco, uh, and he is the founder, he's one of the founders of this field called agnotology, which is the study of the cultural construction of ignorance based on his um, his research on the tobacco industry, about how you had this uh, uh, this data that suggested the link between smoking and lung cancer, and that the industry's campaign to uh, spread doubt and uncertainty about those numbers—that sounds like a badass field, I gotta say. Well, yeah. So it was, re- and I—I I remember I ran into him in uh, the hallway of uh, Stanford once, and he's like, "Hey, we're having this um, conference on campus. It's about agnotology, the construction of in- ignorance. You should come." And I'm like. Sounds great. Sounds great. What the hell does that mean? Right. And it wasn't until I was further into my dissertation work and I was looking at um, a debate uh, between Tokyo Imperial University doctors and doctors from other universities. And, and Tokyo Imperial University was like the Harvard of, of Japan. Um, right. So these guys thought they were the shit and what they thought was the best Uh and everyone else's research was crap, in a nutshell. Um, and it, they were debating the causes and the cures for this disease, beriberi, in the 1910s, 1920s. 
And beriberi is vitamin B1 or thiamine deficiency disease. Uh, we know now that it is caused by a diet deficient in thiamine, which you get from whole grains, um, certain vegetables, pork, uh, and other foods. If you were a Japanese soldier uh, in, you know, fighting in, against the Russians in Manchuria in 1904, 1905, and you were basically eating, uh, you know, three or four gigantic bowls of white rice a day and not much else, maybe some canned food because, it, you know, combat situations, uh, you, your body would rapidly lose all the thiamine in it and you would, you would develop beriberi. And if you didn't get any thiamine in your body after you were debilitated, uh, you would ultimately die of a heart attack because thiamine basically allows the body to turn glucose into energy. So you, you your muscles lose the ability to fire. And what's a big old muscle in your chest is your heart. So it's the, the death, the, the, when you die from beriberi, it's like excruciating because you die of a massive heart attack. Um, so in the military and in, it was kind of like tuberculosis, a kind of a disease of modernity, a disease of industrialization. You have factory workers that aren't eating, you know, that they eat a lot of white, like kind of cheap white rice and maybe something else, but, and they come down with beriberi. Soldiers got it. Um, uh, but the Navy, sailors didn't get it. Navy had said, there's a problem, we got a problem with this beriberi. And our Navy is basically the same as the British Navy because we basically bought everything from them and copied them, except the diet. These guys are eating, our sailors are eating white rice. They're eating bread and meat. Maybe that's a, has something to do with that. So they changed the diet and they got rid of their, their berry berry problems. And if, at this point, it became this debate between uh, army doctors and doctors from Tokyo Imperial University that said, berry berry is caused by a yet to be discovered bacillus. This was the heyday of like cholera and, and, and plague and things like that. Um, so they, they were focused on discovering the, the causal bacillus of very, very, and, 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 you know, uh, you know, someone was going to be able to name that bacteria after themselves, right? That's what they were, they, they were aiming for the fences, right? Um, and other uh, researchers at other, uh, in the Navy and, and at other universities, like KO University, said, you know, all the evidence points to something related to diet. And they slowly figured out, um, and this was not just Japanese doctors as well, but, uh, um, Dutch doctors working in the Dutch East Indies, American doctors working in the Philippines, uh, even British doctors in India, right? They were all concerned with this, with, with this kind of disease. And um, they ultimately figured out there's something in rice bran that uh, uh, if you feed like chickens just white rice, they'll develop very, very, very like symptoms. If you give them bran, rice bran, it'll cure them. So there's something in rice bran that without it causes beriberi and with it uh, can cure it, you know? And so they ultimately figured out uh, it was thiamine. Um, and the scientific evidence slowly got bigger and bigger and bigger that it was diet related and that there's no way that you're ever going to find a causal bacteria for this. And it was at this moment that Tokyo Imperial University doctors kind of deployed, um, uh, basically doubt and uncertainty against 
their rival's data to kind of undermine it, right? And so I, um, when I finally got around to reading Robert Proctor's work about his, you know, this this uh, this idea of constructed ignorance, this this purposeful deployment of doubt and uncertainty about scientific data that you don't like what it says, it resonated, right? Um, and so. Uh, for the dissertation, a lot of that didn't make it into, but it, but my book um, on it's called Berry Berry in Modern Japan: The Making of a National Disease. This idea of constructed ignorance is like one of the theoretical models I use to to construct my argument. Um, and you know, I started that project in I got hired at Chapman in '06, and um, so I was, was working on that. Uh, the book came out in 2012. Um, uh, 3.11 happens in 2011, right? So I, little did I know that later down the road, I would be able to use this idea of doubt, and, you know, that the deployment of doubt and uncertainty, uh, uh, you know, for, cert, for particular uh, political purposes, would become something that uh, I use to to understand, to talk about what's going on in in Japan. I teach my students this. I make them do their readings. You know, they don't they don't have to you know apply it to Japan per se. I mean, they don't need to, right? They they read this stuff and they're like, oh, this is, sounds like what they say about climate change. Oh, this is, you know, I don't know if they're old enough to know about like uh, you know the tobacco industry or not. Um, you know, maybe, classic, they, yeah. you know, there needs to come out an article on vaping or something like that. They'll be all over it. Like, oh yeah, this is exactly what they say about vaping, right? Um, uh, classic time and time tested strategies. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, you know, as you, as we move forward in our kind of academic journeys, you never, you never know what you're going to stumble. I mean, that's, that's how you find your, your topics. Like you're like, mucking around in the library and you stumble over a box and you're like what's in here and you open it up and it's like you know it's like the holy grail you know like you know no one has looked at this in you know since people put that in the box in the library in the first place right and it's all dusty and you open up and like golden you know beams of light shoot out it's like this is it this is my topic right and you could have never have predicted that so what you what you find and the kind of theories that um help you talk about that in your research you know, I believe, I very strongly believe that we we bumble across them in in, in our journeys, and uh, um, you know that's how you know that's academia, right? That's like that's why like digitalizing libraries is so fucked up, right? Because you know. In the olden days, you would like, what do I do for my paper? The you know, if we're a big gigantic state R one university, the professor would say, "Go to the stacks, look around, poke around until you find something, until you stumble across something that you're like, oh my god, what is this?" And it's this, like, this little book between two books that's you know, you look at the back, and it was still when they like like check things out with an actual yeah. date and stamp, and like this was only checked out once, and it was like in 1975, and you know. And then that there's your that becomes your you know whatever your paper topic or your your thesis topic or your dissertation topic right and not having that kind of traditional space to bumble I think really does a disservice to 
to at least uh, the humanities and social science kids. May not make much. I mean, you, you guys, you guys always have lab. You can't digital. Well, maybe you can. Can you digitalize the lab? I don't know. But, but oh, I mean, people are trying. Oh, you people know, are trying. But you guys, I mean, like science departments. You guys got like the newest buildings. I mean, you should see the new science building at 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 Chapman. It's fucking amazing. I mean, just the study spaces. I'd I'd like to have my classes there. Right, just in their just in their free study spaces. It's 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 it's. it's it's awesome it's awesome yeah certainly i kind of bumbled into my the not my research topic the specifics of my research Uh i got into my research topic because you know that was the school i was accepted into yeah and that was a lab i got accepted into so you know that was where i worked um not that i'm not grateful for that at all ungrateful for that the opposite thing i'm happy they worked out that way you know you're right bumbling is necessary i think and um certainly yeah in science though i have to wonder could it be one of those things where you know uh i often find myself going down like a like a you can go down a wikipedia rabbit hole sometimes Mm -hmm. clicking through links yeah i find the same thing is true with papers sometimes too like oh this reference here what is that oh that reference here what is that so what was that word that started the a the agnotology agnotology Having studied that to a higher degree than most, I imagine, do you think there's hope for us? There's hope in terms of the people that are concerned and are, you know, speaking up or speaking out or teaching and things like that. There's, there's not, there's little hope with there's a little hope for people's information literacy if we continue on the path that we're going that there's so much bullshit out there and the the people have are so ill-equipped to cut through it right that they immediately go down their you know in their own little bubbles whether it's a liberal bubble or it's uh you know, conservative bubble, or it's a communist bubble, or it's a burn everything down to the ground and restart bubble, right? Um, that, uh, you know, there has to be some serious change, right? And because it's tied up with profits, it's not going to change, you know, unless, I mean, we need, yeah, you know, like total, you know, we want to wage total war against, um, global warming we 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 need to wage total war against uh uh, you know kind of disinformation uh as well right so there's there should always listen i am a big fan of star trek uh right star trek not wars (laughs) (laughs) yeah Especially in the wake of the latest film, right? Uh, Sorry, take that. Uh, so I'm ultimately optimistic about a future uh, in which human society is dedicated to science and ex- exploration, right? Now, I believe if it's not a Star Trek future, shit, I'm not interested. I agree with you right? on that, yeah. Um but 
And there's a lot of heavy lifting <laughs> that, that needs to happen before before we get there, right? I mean, we, you know, the doubt and uncertainty that, that gets deployed to either um, sabotage uh, somebody or to, to um, you know, um, augment someone else's um, politics or economics it's just you know you know a handful of academics and and social justice warriors aren't going to win that you know it needs to be instilled in the larger kind of public uh and i don't know i don't know i i i am concerned um I'm very concerned. I've got, you know, know, my, I've got a 20 year old son and a seven, 17 year old son. What's, what's going to be, you know, 10 years, like 10 years ago, we wouldn't, we, we didn't imagine it would be this, or most of us didn't imagine it would be this shitty, right? 20 years ago when first had our first kid, didn't, couldn't imagine it would be this shitty, right? So how shitty is it going to be in 20 years from now? Right. In terms of of snowball effect of all, all of these things, who knows? We can't imagine, right. uh, you know, we can't we can't know. So um, no matter what, there's hope. Uh, but there's also, you know, empirical reality. Yes. Um, so we have to battle against uh, use hope to battle against uh the forces of evil that uh, surround us, as it were. Certainly, it's heartening to me to know that there's a word for it. I didn't know that until just until this podcast. Yeah, agnotology. There, there's a conference volume. It's called Agnotology: The Making and, and Unmaking of Ignorance, something like that. It is uh, edited by Robert Proctor and uh, Londa Scheibinger. Um, I think it's Stanford University Press. But if you yeah, if if you type in agnotology, uh, the cultural construction of ignorance, something like that, on a Google search, he'll pop up Good. Immediately, immediately. I'm glad. Yeah, like this, that the very fact that that word exists is a tremendous victory, right? Because then now you have like something like yeah, what these folks are doing. We agnotology. got it. We got. We, got we can. We can like. Yeah. Naming it is the first step in yeah. solving the problem. Make it trend, boys and girls. <laughs> Hashtag agnotology. I'm serious. Hashtag read a book. <laughs> that too. All of the above. All of the above. I was thinking because it's this grad life yeah. that um, you were going to ask more about the kind of ins and outs of grad graduate school at Stanford, um, even uh, though that's way far behind me. Um, but um, if, if that's not... Interesting. That's fine. Oh no, no, no! It's uh, the conversation. Um, yeah, I'll let it go where it goes, okay. and often um, falls off of grad life. Uh, though one of the pillars of this podcast is existential dread. Okay. Which is why I, you know, don't have it on my logo. Okay. I do have it on my logo. I was lying about okay. that. Okay. Existential <laughs> dread. Yeah. Well, I mean, so the, like the whole. I mean, so I was in a PhD program from 1999 to 206. And the prospects, the job market, even though I was on the job market for two or 
three years, maybe only full-time two years. Um, you know, it was not great, but it wasn't completely shitty. You know, most of us uh, got jobs at um, teaching institutes or um, or uh, R1. I mean, some like my friend Brett Whalen, who teaches at UNC, knocked it out of the park, just straight from grad school into an R1. And he's, he's um, I'm sure he wishes that he lived in California still, but you know, he's got a job. I mean, he's, his career is there, you know. Um, right, so the dread, we all dreaded it. But the program was pretty good at Stanford in terms of um, professionalization, right? There was a, a handful of the professors that uh, would help the grad students that were uh, studying for their comprehensive oral exams, which was basically once you pass that, you were ABD, right? Um, and uh, help them on uh, like writing grant proposals, right? So that you could, um, you didn't, you could, uh, didn't have to use your Stanford funding for a year of support. You could bank it for when you came back, you get an extra year for writing. So like if, like I got a Japan Foundation grant to go to uh, Japan for a year. A lot of people applied to the Fulbright uh, and and other kind of grant awarding um, agencies, and so they helped us with um, writing statements of of purpose and things like that, and putting those together. And then on the on the other side, once we got back and we were writing our dissertations. Uh, and getting ready to go on their job market. They helped us with putting um, teaching portfolios together and uh, writing cover letters and uh, interviewing. Um, and, you know, your friends would would um, come watch you give mock job talks and, and, and tear you to pieces. And so, I mean, we were all, we all just wanted the, the, um, we all just wanted a job, right? Uh, but we had to, but but we had to, you know, most of us, I think, jumped through the hoops and and, and we got there. Um, now, like even like Harvard, like graduating class of Latin Americanists, maybe like only one or two out of a whole bunch got jobs this last cycle, right? And these, this is Harvard. These guys are, these people are like super brilliant. Um, we got one of them. <laughs> no, not very good. We got one of them. Uh, so that's why I know that something like that, right? So the dread, I mean, the dread is, is something uh, that I, we weren't um, subjected to as much. I'm sure the Americanists felt the dread because there's a shit ton of people uh, studying American history. There's a shit ton of people already um, teaching American history. And so um, I think it was it was probably a little bit um, uh, maybe more difficult to nab a just straight up American history position if you weren't like an environmental historian or someone who's doing Asian American history or you know women's history something a niche kind of um, 
uh, field where you could say, yeah, I can teach all your survey classes, but I can also teach, um, you know, uh, you know, small seminar like classes um, for women's history or for history of science or for environmental history or something like that, where uh, uh, if you if you were just a straight up yeah I do political history in the United States like well yeah you and five thousand other people and you're all trying for the same damn job right um, so for at that time Asianists Africanists I mean we all you know medievalists we all um, landed on our feet which definitely very grateful uh, for the training and and for at least in my case the search committee that took a chance to hire some super green graduate student who was still finishing their dissertation so but that yeah oh you were still writing by the time you were i was uh so i got hired in the spring of uh 06 and i finished in the summer of 06 I finished and I submitted my dissertation at the beginning of August 06. And I, by the end of August 06, I was teaching at Chapman. Dang. That. Yeah. <laughs> that was rough. But, uh, you know, the existentialism, we, the dread, at least the, the cohort that I hung with, you know, we, we, a number of us had families, like we had young kids, right? We lived in, in married student housing, uh, uh, family housing in Stanford campus. It was awesome because um, our kids could play in the back. Uh, you know, we made it kind of nine to five. You know, that was what, that was the advice that one of my um, upper class people said, you know, that this, this, and he was, he was already out. Said the secret is make it a nine to five job. And your life will be so much more enjoyable. <laughs> and so we kind of did uh, because either, you know, we had um, spouses to come or families to, to come back to. I mean, of course, we had late night sessions and we hung out and we drank beer on the weekends. You know, we were normal people. We didn't like freak out. The people that freaked out were the ones that um, were uh, maybe not as old maybe hadn't done a terminal MA program, maybe went straight from undergrad in, into grad school. And, you know, like 23, 24-year-old is not going to be kind of intellectually as mature, you know, not talking about ability, you know, but just kind of general maturity than someone who's 30, 31, you know. Um, and so most of my closest friends were, uh, you know, my best friend, Brett, Waylon, who now teaches at UNC, you know, we had both done terminal MA programs because we were kind of fuck offs as as undergrads, and um, you know, we want we knew we wanted to be there. Uh, this is what uh, you know. This is the reason why we went to to grad school uh, to get an MA because we knew we needed it and we knew we wanted the PhD. A lot of kids. You know, they were brilliant that, you know, they were probably, hey, you should go, you should go into grad school. Oh, really? That sounds great. And then they get there and they realize, I don't really want to do this. Uh, and then they crap out. You know, maybe they got an MA or something. You know, one brilliant meltdown <laughs> from this guy um, uh, whose initials are uh, uh, Shahar Link. Um <laughs> He, I mean, he sent this out to all grad, like there was a, um, 
graduate student listserv. And he was probably in his third year. He was studying for his orals and he just was like, fuck it. I don't want to have to read another book or another article or chapter um, that my professor tells me I have to. I want to read for my own knowledge. And you guys are all slaves to the man and the machine. And this like this like three or four page tirade of just like how we're all like being duped. And then he was like, I'm out of here, fuckers. And, uh, you know, people were like, yeah, man, yeah, that's right. And other people are like, what the fuck are you doing? Just write your goddamn dissertation proposal and fucking turn it in. Jesus Christ, it's not that big of a deal, right? Um, I mean, I, 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 I love, I'm still friends with and love Shahar. You know, and he probably maybe kicks himself a little bit to this day for for not sticking with it. But, you know, that was a moment in his life where he didn't think that he wanted it. He didn't want it bad enough, you know. And, he, he you know, he's a brilliant guy. He's a, and he was a brilliant undergraduate, went into to a PhD program. And, you know, my friend Brett and I were like, Jesus, dude. Like, what the hell, you know? Uh, as we're drinking beer, right? Being normal people on the weekends, you know? That's a secret, be normal on the weekend. Be, well, yeah, well, I mean, we worked on the I weekends. I missed that memo. So, yeah, well, but you, you, humanities and sciences are going to be going to be different in terms of the amount of time that you need to spend. I mean, maybe they're equal in terms of the amount of time I spend on my ass reading primary sources um, versus the amount of time you spend in the lab. But maybe it's different because I can just like go to the coffee shop with my sources, sit my butt down in a chair and read for an hour and I have accomplished something where you in science may need more prep time. You need to go in there, you need to set shit up, you need to run the experiment, you need to take all the data down, you need to clean it, you know, you need to do a lot more different things where the data, I'm interfacing with it basically right there where you you have to design, run an experiment. The data, you know, is then possibly like a graph a line on a graph and then you're like that point right there where it goes bloop that's what i'm talking about right so it's you you guys obviously spend a lot more time in the lab than we do certainly in the chair but um so maybe it allowed us to hang out and drink beer maybe more than you guys perhaps um there is always the risk of it not working, you know. That's always a huge risk too. Mm-hmm. Well, that's science. why you need the beer to like yeah. <laughs> either to celebrate <laughs> or drown your sorrows, you know. One of the two, yeah. Usually it's the case. I we saw a number of people crap out of the the Stanford program that went from undergrad directly into a, you know, the Stanford PhD program and just weren't mature enough uh, at that point in their lives. Um, and you know that's that that was you know our experience we thought so so my partner in crime brett and i we thought we were representative of like yeah just keep your head down do your work do your classwork don't be an asshole you know do what your 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 advisor says and you know um and uh, you know that's how it's done right and the farther we went into the program the the more we realized, no, we weren't representative of the norm. We were actually representative of the abnormal, the ones that have maintained their sanity through the through the program and haven't had uh, an existential crisis. You know, maybe mini ones, 
We had probably a bunch of mini ones, but not like a big gigantic like meltdown, like you're all slaves to the man, fuck you guys, I'm out of here type of thing, which was just like in in, in retrospect, it's it's we laugh about it, right? Um, you know, uh, but was was that really the best choice? Uh, I, I you know, it's not for me to not for me to say, right? Um, but like, you know. How hard is it to sit your ass in a chair and, and, and read a bunch of books about a topic that you are generally interested in? So uh, that, that was, I guess, to sum up the, the grad experience, right, is, um, is you may be an outlier if you just treat it like a normal job and have a normal life and, you know, like exercise. Well, like, that's really important. Oh, my God. There was uh, luckily there was the there was the Stanford um, uh, Muay Thai club, so I could get a couple. I get a workout. Well, I I was starting to get two workouts in a week, and then they realized, oh, you need to be teaching a class. Like, oh fuck, okay. So I, you know, but I, like I had, I had a heavy bag, and uh, couldn't really. Oh, I could, and I did, but I, I stopped doing it. Um, hang it out back in our little patio area, uh, just because it's you know it's like a heavy bag, and you're hitting it, and you're kicking it, and your knee, and you know it's like whoosh, tang, soak, you know, and you're like pop, 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 pop. Um, so I would like carry it over at like five o'clock in the morning. I'd get up super early, maybe once a week to get a bag workout in, take it. And I would hang it from, uh, the basketball court. that was just right across from where we were. And, um, and that's how I like maintained my sanity to a certain degree it was like, I, I, you could get a, a Muay Thai workout in, uh, get a bag workout in, you know, go for a jog, you know, something like that. Um, so that, you know, stay mentally, you know, mind, body, you know, you cannot divide the two you know you got to have a healthy body uh to maintain you know your focus and you know i did um i would have done more yoga had i known about yoga then i it's only in the past five years that i've kind of gotten into into yoga but every graduate student no matter what field they should do yoga to it they I three times a week. Absolutely agree. Three, three, make oh, it five times a week. Three minimum. Know. Three minimum. Yeah, save Just, my ass for sure. Yeah, because we sit, we sit, we read. We're we're hunched over. Like, you know, you need you need to fix that. You need to fix that shit. You know, like like exercise, um, maintain. You know, you know, a non toxic social life. I mean, if you go out and just get shit faced, and you know. When you go out drinking on Thursday nights with your with your friends and you just get completely plastered, okay, that's not that's not healthy, you know. But you know, go out and enjoy several drinks with your friends, shoot the shit, you know, complain or talk about stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with anything. Talk about music, you know, or what the stuff you like. You know, that's what I mean. That's what you know, grad school's about. You know, it, you know, in it, on top of your classes. And your coursework on top of uh, your research on top of of TA right is like hanging out with your cohort drinking beer and shooting the shit like why would you you know I once joked to, to one of my friends is like about some of our um, colleagues uh, graduate students in the program that like 
didn't seem to enjoy the consumption of alcohol or be really social. And I was, I just jokingly said, why are they historians in the first place? I mean, what this is all about is like hanging out with our friends, drinking beer and shooting the shit. And my friend, uh, Matt Booker, um, he, he actually teaches at North Carolina State now. He has a new book coming out called um, Food Fight, about the history of, uh, why the history of, of the food we eat matters. Um, so get that one, kiddos. Um, uh, but, you know, it, it, like his, his laughter was like, yes, indeed. Like, you know, why go through all the trouble of doing what we do if we can't like kick it with our, with our colleagues, drink a beer and relax? And I'll tell you, as faculty, that's key. <laughs> so get that, instill, institute that practice early in graduate life where not over the top, not in excess, um, but, you know, don't deprive yourself of, of, of whatever kind of social things you like because you're going to need it. That's your, that's your, you know, uh, that's how you maintain your sanity in a, in a, in a graduate program, I think, you know. Uh, and that's how you maintain your sanity as a, as a junior faculty, you know, getting your, getting your research done is by those times where you're um, with, your, with your friends and colleagues and you go out and you have some drinks and you shoot the shit. And it doesn't have to be about work. It doesn't have to be about uh, scholarship. Sometimes it is. You know, it could be like time to tell, you know, silly stories about yourself and laugh. And, and that's what makes, I think, a strong graduate student cohort. And that's definitely what makes a strong kind of department. That if you can go out and socialize with, with your colleagues and and uh, have a good time and enjoy and you're not at each other's throats. I mean, some of the, the, you know, the stories of departments that are at each other's throats, you know, no matter where you go to, you're, you're going to find them. It's like, it's, that's crazy. Why? Yeah. Exactly. Why? why? Like, just, you know, that uh, go and have a beer and, and, and relax. It'll be fine. I swear, everything will be fine. Just do it now. Um, so, I don't know. My point is, I think there's parallels in um, how you get your work done, maintain your sanity, and a graduate program translates fairly well to um, how you do the same thing as a junior faculty. Now, of course, of course, there is horror stories, but in in this in my very limited experience of myself and my friends, right? I mean, that's how that's how we made it through, and that's how we make it through to this day. And my junior faculty, you know, I, you know, we try to socialize with them, uh, you know, outside of a strictly work environment because you know these are the people that we work with, you know. If we don't see them every day, we see them every week a number of times, right? And so we have to, you know, make decisions together. We have to, we have to work together. We have to live together. And, um, you know, kicking it uh, with a beer, a glass of wine, or a cup of coffee, whatever. It doesn't have to be a stimulant or a depressant. I mean, it can be water or something, whatever. A sugary drink is what you prefer. But, you know, I'm not advocating become an alcoholic but once again gets back to what are you in this in this profession for if not to kick it and relax 
and talk to your 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 colleagues you know it's you know of course we're molding young minds of course we're constructing um, new knowledge yeah you know but that that requires uh, some different support mechanisms that uh, if you're super myoptic um, or you're in a, in a fucked situation you know I mean hey like I you know I've friends that you know as junior faculty go through a divorce right and that just like eviscerates their um themselves their um, their research you know um and if kids are involved it's even fucking worse so again there's it's not all cocktail parties and and trips to the pub uh, but you know the more you can make it kind of like that i think the uh, the more successful you'll be, the, the healthier you'll be mentally and physically, right? Because you're not dreading every single fucking step of the way, right? You know, but maybe once again that like my friend Brett and I, like we are, we are the anomalies and, uh, and, and the norm is a lot worse and, if it is, I, uh, I'm sorry. Well, certainly, um, all of the people that have come through so far that have stayed sane, at least to their word, they have stayed sane, mm-hmm. uh, say the same thing. People you can hang out with, community matters a lot. Who you hang out, being able to hang out, yeah, that seems to really be the secret. So we have a lot of data points here on this show. Let's say the same thing. So uh, y'all keep that in mind. Yeah, do yoga. Mm-hmm. Do martial yeah. arts. Well, I advocate heavily for yoga during grad yeah. school. Yeah. Find a pursuit that will always be the the backbone of your life, regardless of what, whether you're in grad school, out of grad school, in academia, out of academia, no matter what, that if your life pursuit is yoga, if your life pursuit is, you know, Muay Thai or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or what have you, right? That will always be there for you. That will always be a pillar in your life. And I don't think my experience as a grad student or as a junior faculty or as a senior faculty would would be half of what it was if it wasn't for those those um, things that that help balance out the, you know, I mean, it's suck. I mean, it's called work because it sucks. Right, you can't you can't avoid yes. that. To that point, I actually found my group of people outside of my cohort. Okay. Yeah, because I just I just couldn't relate to them. People in my lab, they were nice folks, fun group, fun group. But the problems that we were working on, just so totally different. But I just we couldn't we could hardly relate on like the, the the scientific level, and then we were just kind of different people into different things. I'm like, yeah, okay. But I was fortunate enough to find a you know group of nerds um, <laughs> that I could you know similar group of nerds yeah. um, that I could hang out with. So yeah, 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 a full agreement with you there. Like it's that does seem to be the secret. And if you can't find it where you are, perhaps bumbling is good rather than being insular. You know that seems to be like a very natural human response. Yeah, you know. In terms of like, like people say like, well, you know, I want to start martial arts, but I don't know what to do. 
Like, well, just go to go to a bunch of different schools, watch a class or take a class. You know, if you went, you know, if you go and, and watch a karate class and they're like going up and down, you know, doing their basics and they do kata and they do some free sparring uh, and you're like, yeah, OK, this is kind of what I'm into. Um, then join. If not, like, you know, you go to a Brazilian jiu-jitsu class. They're like, yeah, just put on a gi and roll. Like, this is how you choke a guy out. You're like, holy shit, this is great. Like, maybe that's for you. Right. Or you go to a, you know, like Thai boxing and, you know, like you're kicking and kneeing and elbowing and punching pads and you're grabbing someone and you're like kneeing them really hard and you throw them across the room and then you like kick them again you're like damn yeah this feels good then that's you know so or if you're like i don't want to ever punch anyone in the face nor do i want to get punched in the face then something you know like a bag class or you know aikido or whatever tai chi i mean there's different people's needs can be met through the martial arts are out, that are out there, you know, go out, you know, try, take a look at a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and you know, you'll, you'll know like when, when it's right, you know, it's the same with like yoga, right? Like what type of yoga should I do? Well, try it all. I mean, don't you, you they're not going to throw you into the advanced class and you know, because you can't obviously do it, but you know, gentle yoga, this yoga, introductory yoga, hot yoga, whatever, you know, the i i get people on social media that share these like beer yoga like beer yoga is a thing and you should try and like like no <laughs> i mean it it's it's like novelty like, it is a novelty like novelty like why don't you just do yoga and then go drink a beer right like, i mean that's the most logical thing to do it's like a rhyme and a reason to all these movements you know not just here to have fun, which well, we are here to have fun, yeah, but yeah. you know, it's, but yeah, that is a secret, folks. Go find your people. Go find your people. They're out there. Bumble waiting. around. Bumble around for sure. You don't. You don't know yet, and they probably don't know yet. But they're your peeps, and you will find them. And uh, how about it? Final question. Yes. That I ask everybody. Okay. When you got a stress eat, what's your go-to stress eat? Beer, but that's not food, and also you can't just like. 12 o'clock at night crack o- well you could but no, you i could. don't you could it crack open like three beers and just be like i'm so stressed <laughs> like no i it, it uh um when i when i rely on like like when when a cup of coffee doesn't do it uh and i need to like i need to plug through either a reading or some grading or some writing sometimes it's writing I will go to, there's a cupcake place close to Chapman. It's hardly ever open, though. They're always like, sorry, we're closed, doing a private party. But they have these big, gigantic, like, donuts that are um, super sugary. Like, if you, if you, you know, like, like a Krispy Kreme, you could eat one in literally, like, 30 seconds, right? You could just inhale it. If you ate that donut in a similar time span you would make yourself sick. It's just so like sugary and rich and things. So like over like a two hour period, I will divide it up and take little pieces and work and work and work. And you can feel the sugar, sugar, sugar. And when it starts to like, when you when you start to like um, go over that hump, take another piece and just at the end of it, at the end of those two hours or three hours, you feel like shit, like your stomach is <laughs> like, oh God, why did I do that? But you made it through, like you, you powered through that which needed to get done. So that's not necessarily stress eating per se, but it is using food, uh, maybe for not 
you know, using food not just for straight up nutrition. To help deal with a situation. Indeed, indeed. We'll, we'll call that one that one. Well, it has been an absolute blast talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming.